Ever since Galileo famously clashed with the church over his work in the 17th century, many other scientists have found themselves in conflict with a group of people because of their research. Today, Professor Alice Dreger tells us some of these stories of confrontation between scientists and activists, including controversies in her own work on ambiguous gender. Alice, welcome to the show. You're a professor of clinical medical humanities and bioethics at Northwestern University. And you're also an author. Your most recent book came out, I think, last week um, and is called Galileo's Middle Finger, which is a fabulous name. Um, and you're kind of, you're, you're interested in the tension between activism and scientific research, um, or maybe more accurately, a activists and scientists. <laughs> um, tell, tell us about, about your interest there. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I mean, I'm not a scientist proper. I'm a social scientist, so I'm a historian. And the place my work has come from is this is just that kind of tension. So I started doing work in the history of science and history of medicine and looking at what had happened to people labeled hermaphrodites in the 19th century and what happened in the 19th century in France and Britain and folks who had been born with the same types of conditions, which blend male and female types. Today we usually call it intersex. They started contacting me and asking me to help change the current day medical system. And that brought me kind of into the intersex rights movement. And so I ended up um, becoming an activist as well as doing scholarship. And from there, I went on and got involved in another book controversy, which we can talk about if you want. And the consequence of that was I had some activists come after me. So I became really interested in this question of how should scientists or scholars and activists deal with each other? What's the right way to handle things when there are these tensions, especially over human identity? Yeah, um, I, I do want to talk about that story because I think I think it's a really nice example of the type of issue that you think a lot about. So why don't you talk us through some of the major points of that story and and kind of the issues that surround it? Sure. So this was uh, the work I was doing started in 2006, and it was a controversy around a book published by a Northwestern psychology professor named Michael Bailey. And Bailey's book was about what he called feminine males, that is to say, people who are biologically male but have some feminine qualities to them. So he was looking at different populations, including gay men, um, including boys who had been sex changed um, at birth because they had small penises, which is what doctors used to do. And he was also interested in looking at the transgender population that transitions from male to female. And he was supporting there the work of um, a sex researcher in Canada named Ray Blanchard, and Blanchard posited from his own clinical observations of hundreds of folks transitioning from male to female that there were actually two distinct populations within that group. And one group were people who were fairly feminine from early on and were consistently attracted only to males. And they ended up transitioning to become what would appear to everybody to be straight women. So those are um, transgender women who are then straight women. And the other side of the population, which is the one that got Bailey in trouble, is an observation by Blanchard of a side of the population that seemed to everybody to be pretty typical straight men, so typical boyish childhoods, masculine interests in terms of hobbies and in terms of careers, but they end up transitioning and often taking people by surprise, including they're often married, um, often have children. And what Blanchard described in that population was something he called autogynophilia, which referred to these um, particular individuals having a sexual attraction to women, but also being aroused themselves by the idea of being or becoming women. And I should hesitate to note 
that both Bailey and Blanchard thought that there was nothing wrong with either of these types of ways of transitioning and recognized that if the cultural system made sense for them in terms of better survival, better quality of life, that those folks would transition and would do better. And so both of them have supported transitioning um, for anybody who wants to transition and is reasonably well screened. But this is controversial because talking about transgender when talking about sexual orientation was a very controversial thing to be doing at that point because the transgender population had desexualized in parts to deal with the heteronormative system that rejects them. But then it was also controversial because historically what Blanchard was describing was considered in the psychological establishment a kind of fetish and not a real kind of sexual orientation. And so there was a lot of stigma attached to it historically. So I ended up looking into charges made against Bailey in 2003-2004. And these are charges that he had, for example, done um, human subjects research on this population without IRB, without Institutional Review Board oversight, so ethics board oversight that he had um, experimented on people essentially without their knowledge, that he had failed to maintain confidentiality in some cases, that he had practiced psychology without a license, and that he had had sex with a transsexual research subject when she was his research subject. And when I looked, started looking into this, I really thought that it was going to be a kind of he said, she said story, but the more I dug, the more I found that there really was not evidence to support the charges being made against him and that the charges being made against him were being done for political reasons. So remind us who, who was behind these charges. Well, there's um, a number of people, but there, there were three leaders in terms of the charges being made, and those were um, a transgender woman scientist, Lynn Conway, at the University of Michigan. She's a computer engineer. Deidre McCloskey, who's at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and is a very distinguished um, professor of economics and rhetoric um, in English, and then also a transgender activist named Andrea James, who's based in Hollywood. They were the three main people leading the charges. Okay, so so essentially they were all kind of activists, um, activists on behalf of, of transgender people. Um, well, in this particular case, they were functioning as a group. They, they don't tend, well, Conway tends to do some activism. James does some activism. McCloskey historically had not done much activism, but this is kind of what it turned into. It was sort of an activist push to go after Bailey on every count they could figure out. What I did was went in and did as much research as I possibly could and tried to figure out what could we know. And what we could know was in many of these cases that there was no there was no truth to the charges being made. And then, in fact, some of the people making the charges should have known that there was no truth to it, that this was this was similar to what's happened to many scientists in terms of pissing off an identity politics group with their work and having people come after them in all sorts of ways instead of engaging them with the argument, really trying to go after their careers. Yeah, so I want to talk about some other ones because kind of over the years, I mean, you've, this is what got you interested in the topic, but then you, you've definitely explored much further um, and you've been in touch with quite a few researchers who have done controversial work um, and taken a lot of heat for it. I'm just remembering um, you mentioning a physician who kind of doubted the reality of fibromyalgia um, as a real condition. Um, and of course, yeah, the, the, of course, those people that suffer from it or believe they suffer from it, depending on what's actually true, were upset, right? Indeed. And, you know, it's understandable that people get upset because we live in an age of identity where our identities are hard won and, and deeply felt and uh, we protect them a lot. And so when a researcher is making a claim about something that you feel is a core part of your identity and they're challenging that, it's understandable that people get upset. 
So, I mean, some of, some of the cases in the book sound funny, but they're not when people come after them. So, for example, there was one researcher looking at the stories of people who claimed they were abducted by aliens, and she wrote a skeptical book about that and ended up having those people get very upset with her. <laughs> There's um, Elizabeth Loftus, a very serious case where she was looking at recovered, alleged recovered memory of childhood sexual abuse and was showing reason to believe that it, in the main case used as the example of it, that in fact what, what had happened was probably not recovered memory of a sexual abuse by this woman's mother when she was a child, but rather that there were suggestions made to that girl during the divorce proceedings that suggested to her that she was sexually abused instead. And so Loftus ended up with her colleague, Melvin Geyer, having to fight all the way to the California Supreme Court in terms of defending their work. They did ultimately essentially win that case, but it was a really trying time for her, for Loftus and for Geyer. And, um, you know, I capture their stories in the book, but I don't think I can do them full justice in terms of the level of suffering that has occurred. And I don't mean to minimize the suffering that occurs for people who feel these folks are challenging their identities. I think that suffering is also really real, but there's there's a lot of pain on both sides in this book. When there's some some element of suffering involved or some element of maybe, maybe association with your identity in a deep way, th those are the things that kind of get people really fired up and, and angry. I mean, is there anything else that, that you feel like um, any other kind of topic um, that kind of like charges an activist movement against research on it? Well, I mean, we've seen an interesting corollary in the climate change um, scene, although there what's being done has a lot to do with money and not with identity. Hmm. Um, this, the kinds of stuff I trace out have to do with identity, and I think it is, as you say, it's, it's because people feel it very deeply, and so when that, when that identity is being threatened, they will fight back really hard. Um, and then, you know, part of what goes on is that the, the people who are doing the fighting back are often the people who are the most, um, there's not a nice way to say it, are the most self-absorbed of a particular group, so they're not representative of the whole group. Mm -hmm. But they may be the people who decide to take on a particular um, assault against a researcher, and they will go much farther than most of that population would ever do. Uh, because they are the people who psychologically have the most ability to do that. And often the, the group is not particularly benefited by these kinds of attacks, but what ends up happening is that's how the group gets represented is by um, the people who do the most forceful assault. And that's why I try to be careful in the book to point out that this was, a, in the Bailey case, for example, it was a small subset of transgender women, and to my mind, not representative of the transgender activist population, which mostly focuses on very reasonable stuff about trying to get um, acceptance in society, trying to get access to the care that they need, trying to deal with their health disparities, and trying to deal with bashings and murders, which are, you know, critically important. Um, I wonder if you have a sense of how researchers deal with this? I mean, do, do you see that people kind of try to stay away from topics that cause controversy? That certainly happens, yeah, and, and people being warned off of particular research topics. So when I started looking into the Bailey controversy, for example, I had a colleague who had um, tangled with some of these folks earlier, just very lightly um, tangled with them, told me, drop it, walk away, don't do anything, just get away from there. <laughs> And I've met a number of scientists who have been told the same thing, some of whom, in fact, did abandon work because they were afraid of pissing off an identity group that's pretty strong. Um, but then you also get the people that I refer to in the book as having Galilean personalities, and those are people who were like, um, to my mind, Galileo, in that they have this kind of personality where they're uh, very 
um, sure of themselves, almost arrogant, often arrogant, actually, <laughs> and somewhat naive in terms of what costs will be accrued to them personally when they decide to go and make a, a daring claim, a daring claim politically in terms of identity issues. So Galileo, we think of Galileo as a Copernican and dealing with telescopes, but what Galileo was really doing was making a claim about human identity. He was really making the claim that we were not the center of the universe, that there was not a God who was making us terribly special. He was decentering us in the universe very clearly, and he was challenging Catholic dogma, not about astronomy. He was challenging Catholic dogma at the most basic level about human identity and our relationship to God. So that's why he was so incredibly challenging and why the church fought him back so very hard was because he was really going after an identity issue. So what you see in Galileo, this sort of um, ability to push beyond where most of us would be able to push this ability to believe that truth is going to save you and then getting caught in these systems because you, you do think truth is going to save you and you're wrong. Um, we see that even today with a lot of scientists and a lot of the folks I found who got into trouble got into trouble for having that personality because they thought that the science would save them, essentially. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and I wonder if, I want to get back to Galileo, but I wonder if eventually the science does save you, you know, in the long run, but maybe not, not in the time frame that, that you want. But in the long run, maybe it all comes out in the wash and the facts kind of. I like to think so. <laughs> I, I think that, you know, we now know Galileo was right about a lot of his science. He was wrong about some things. He had the tides wrong. But he had a lot of things right, uh, the moons of Jupiter, the phases of Venus, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yes, you do win. Um, the problem is you're often dead by the time you win. <laughs> and so your life may be quite miserable up until the point at which you expire and your ideas don't. Um, and this is true with Galileo, and that, that's why the book is called Galileo's Middle Finger, actually, because um, if you don't mind, I'll just tell quickly that story. Yeah, I'd, is, yes, I'd, I want you to. I was going to ask you about it. <laughs> Galileo, when he died, he was in disfavor with the church. Um, they were very upset with him. And so he was buried in an ordinary grave. But about 100 years later, by that point, they realized he was right and he was an Italian hero and, you know, he's a national hero and he was a genius and a scientist and all of that. And so they went to build him this grand tomb in the Basilica of Santa Croce in, in Florence. And they were moving his body from this ordinary grave to the Basilica grave. And when they were doing that, one of his devotees decided to chop off a few of his fingers to keep as a relic. And this was common for saints. And so it was sort of like Galileo was almost a scientific saint to this man. And he took the fingers and he mounted them in different places. But one of them ended up mounted on a marble pil pillar that then ended up in the Florence Museum that I ended up in, in graduate school. And so when I came upon this in graduate school, I was kind of stunned at this display that I hadn't read anything about or expected anything about to find Galileo's mummified, nasty-looking finger pointing skyward <laughs> on this marble pedestal, which was engraved with praise of him. And I just found it hilarious. It's not that, you know, raising your middle finger doesn't mean the same thing in Italy as it means in the United States, but it still struck me as incredibly hilarious that, you know, he died out of favor. He died being questioned. But what was left of him was him giving the universe the middle finger and pointing to the skies as if to say, I was right, and he was right. And so I thought that was a great title for the book because it's the kind of way in which science does outlive us and in which the, the urge to do science outlives us, the urge to point to the sky, to look at the sky, to share knowledge together outlives us, but also the level of which the human is 
swept up in this and really mangled in many ways. So I thought it, it, it was in many ways the perfect title. And I was really glad that Penguin was willing to keep it because I wasn't sure they would be willing <laughs> to keep it as a book title. When they sent me the cover, I thought it was a joke because the cover shows Galileo with his hand digitized, blurred as if, as if they're blurring out him giving you the finger. The, the actual painting that they're using, he's holding up an index finger. But it's a really, it's a really great allegory for the whole book because it's the idea of the scientist representation being sort of mangled and digitized and changed and also Galileo sort of surviving all of that. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking at the cover right now. It's, it's really great. Yeah. And, and I, I assume that you, you, you must see many parallels with his story and, and kind of the work you do. Um, well, I don't, I, mean, I don't think of myself as a Galileo, but I certainly hold him as, uh, I, it's fair to say, an idol. I've always held him as an idol, um, in part because he was a disgruntled Catholic and I'm an ex-Catholic. And his, his ability to kind of um, try to keep pushing and keep knowing and keep learning and keep arguing really is something I deeply admire. And I think a lot of historians of science really admire Galileo. When I was in graduate school, our department actually had a song we would sing, which is, <laughs> Galileo, he's just great. He's the one we venerate. <laughs> so, so cheesy, but if you know Galileo as a real, he's a real human. I mean, you, when you read about him, he gets angry, he's petulant, he's funny, he has affairs. He's so human that it's hard not to admire him and to think that he's a real emblem because he remains so real and so human as he fought his way towards knowledge. Um, no. Another thing I, I want to talk about is the fact that you you value good science and good activism, and you even say somewhere um, science and social justice require each other to be healthy. Um, I, I wonder what, what what do you mean by that? Well, social justice, if it's going to be sustainable and it's going to be done well, it requires evidence. We have to know why people do what they do and what kinds of systems work. For example, if we're talking about a crime, let's say we're talking about rape, it's important to know why do people rape, what might reduce rates of rape, what might encourage victims to safely um, call it out when it happens, what might help in terms of prosecution, perhaps DNA analysis. Mm -hmm. So we really need science to adequately do social justice. But we also need social justice to have science be safe. And by that I mean that social justice movements have in many ways, been about protection of the individual and protection of the core values of America, things like freedom of speech and freedom of inquiry. And so really without the, the democratic social justice movement that the Founding Fathers started in this country, it would be really difficult for scientists to do the work that they do. And I think that's really under threat in universities right now, um, especially with the move of universities towards seeing themselves as brands and the idea that you know every university has its distinct brand and we're all supposed to sort of use the same color PowerPoints and we're supposed to talk about the university in the same way and do the kind of work that doesn't offend any donors, wouldn't offend any corporate sponsors, wouldn't offend the NIH, offend any congressmen. When we're moving in that direction, we're really moving in a place that's away from a sort of safe space for, for scholarship and especially science towards a place that I think is um, risky. And I'm, I'm really concerned about that. It, maybe it's the flip side of, of what you're saying now, but you have this kind of interesting concept that you put forward about kind of evidence-based activism um, and kind of how if it's evidence-based scientists would, would have to respect it. it. Did you ever kind of flesh out that, that idea? I mean, it's a really lovely idea. Um, 
it's not fleshed out in the book, but I think it's actually being enacted in places all over the place. Um, I mean, a good example would be the innocence projects that occur at a lot of law schools and a few journalism schools, where they're really trying to use evidence to try to push for um, issues of individual justice. But then at the larger level, if we look at, for example, I mean, to me, a good example is when you look at sex education, the people who are trying to push for good, positive, open sex education have bothered to do the studies to figure out, does abstinence education, where you encourage kids not to have sex, does that work? And the data says no. The data says no. Abstinence education actually makes kids have sex earlier, and it makes them do it in less safe ways. Um, that's an example, I think, around climate change and environmental issues. We see a lot of really smart activism with regard to really looking at the issues of what do we know in terms of our effects on the environment? What do we know about what we can do? In the food movement, I think we see a lot of really smart evidence-based activism looking at the question of, you know, are GMOs really harmful? Looking at the question of what do animals experience when we farm them in different ways? And for all of these things, you in some ways have to start with a value that's a political value. So, for example... For sex education, you're obviously starting with a value that says you believe sex is okay. It's not a bad thing. When you're, when you're thinking about animal welfare in terms of farming systems, you're starting with the assumption that you should care about animals. So those are all starting with political values, but they then bother to go and gather the evidence and ask the questions, what can we know? And I think you really have to be open to the possibility that you might be wrong and then to respond to that and adjust your means to get to the end you're trying to get to. You know, there's a, co there's a couple other things I want, I want to cover. I see that we don't have much time, but um, I do kind no, of no, keep going. It's okay. I do, I do kind of. I, I think I would have missed something if we didn't talk a little bit more about um, your your work on intersex and kind of ambiguous gender. And I just have this quote of yours, and I it's just it's just great. So you say. Um, you know you've hit on an interesting research topic when in a single week you get interview requests from both Penthouse Magazine and Christian Life Radio, <laughs> and you know you're doing something promising when both interviewers tell you they agree with your political stance. Yeah, that, that was in the mid-1990s. It was a really weird week. And they, they differed on their reasoning. So we're talking about kids in this case who are, there are different ways to be intersex, but one of the ways to be born intersex is to have atypical genitals that are between the male and the female type. And the attitude of the pen test interviewer was nobody should mess with your sex organs if there's nothing wrong with them. You should determine for yourself what you want to do with your sex organs. And the attitude of the Christian Life radio interviewer was God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't send these babies into the world because they're broken. He sends them because we need them. And so it was super interesting how these two very diverse points of view both end up agreeing with me, which was my own um, work with the intersex rights movement in which we, we were and remain very skeptical that early genital surgeries is the best route for these kids. The intersex rights movement um, makes a strong argument that I think is doesn't have enough data yet, but I think it's going to be borne out that, in fact, you can raise these children as girls and boys, and you do that by taking a best guess gender assignment based on what you know about prenatal brain development, what you know about the body development, what you know about the family. But then you don't do unnecessary surgeries until the child can decide for him or herself what they want to do with their body. And that may not sound terribly radical, but in a lot of children's clinics today around the country and hospitals, that's still considered a radical idea. So I still work with the movement, and I'm still trying to change that system. And there's a lot of wonderful people who work in it, and um, it's a very vibrant movement. So I think it has a lot of promise. 
Yeah, and, and you have a lot of stories kind of um, that branch off this movement that people can read about in the book if they want. There, it's a very interesting, um, very interesting topic. I also want to want to talk about this. So you say that the majority of scientists you have found also care about social justice. So it's definitely not this dichotomy between activism and science, right? Um, uh, yeah, how, how have you seen that play out? Well, there have been a few studies actually done of the political um, positions, specifically of evolutionary psychologists and evolutionary anthropologists, which is the group that of, the groups that often get accused of being right-wing, of supposedly believing that, you know, human nature is fully set and we should divide people according to their human nature and have social classes based on biology. And if you bother, as some researchers have done, to look at the political orientations of those folks, it turns out they're typical academics. They're very far on the left. And so it's really not true that they are right-wingers, nor do they support the idea that nature is everything and that we should divide social systems based on nature. Um, I've yet to find a scientist who thinks that. I've certainly met some right-wing people who believe it, but they're not scientists. So I think what, what we have is a situation where people are committing what in philosophy of science is called a naturalistic fallacy, and that's the idea that what is in the world, what we describe as being in the world, is the way the world should be. And the scientists that I know who work on identity issues don't don't commit that fallacy. They understand that they're doing descriptive work about the world, but that the normative work, the question of what we should do about it, is a separate question. And that's a question that requires policymakers and people with the identities to participate and the rest of us if possible. So I think the the stereotype is that these scientists are terribly naive politically, that they're right-wing politically, that they are committing the naturalistic fallacy and telling us that because males and females have different brain development um, in utero, that that somehow tells us the way the world should operate. And that's not my experience with them. They're actually very subtle thinkers and very smart people who think pretty carefully about this stuff. But they believe that their research should come first and that we shouldn't be afraid of research that challenges the way we believe the world should be. Um, And that's what I think makes them different, is that they tend to believe that the science in and of itself can't hurt us. We can only hurt ourselves with the science. Why don't we kind of end with, um, what, what, what do you feel would be like a, a better way for kind of scientists and, and activists to interact going forward? Well, I think that um, what would be great is if the people who are doing the best kind of work were the people who often were out in front. And unfortunately, that doesn't always happen, both on the science side and the activist side. So one of the things I'd like to have happen is for the people who are doing the best work to step up more and use themselves as examples of um, leaders who do a kind of respectful work, whether that's a scientific work that understands political implications, doesn't need to be afraid of it, but understands that there are political implications and deals with that in a way that's respectful. And then also on the activist side to recognize that Um, scientists are not your enemy, that the people going out and looking for data are not your enemy, Um, truth is not your enemy, that you have to engage people with the conversation of, so what do we do with the data when we have it? Is the data good? What does it mean? Could we get more? So just trying to get people to do that more, I think, would be really critical. But what I would love at the end of the day is for people to really understand the relationship between truth and justice. Because so that, I think, is what we're lacking in a lot of ways, is people's understanding that truth really requires a just system to be sought, and that justice really requires truth in order to be just. Um, and if we could get people to understand that, I feel like we'd, we'd be a lot farther ahead than we are right now. 
Well, Alice, thanks so much for, for being on the show. It was really fascinating. Um, once again, her... thanks a ton for having me. I yeah. really appreciate it. It's yeah, been a great course. conversation. Well, once again, her book is called Galileo's Middle Finger. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today on the Grok Science Show, and make sure to tune in next week. For Charles Lee Franklin and the rest of the Grok's crew, I'm Samantha Thomas. Have a great afternoon, and keep on grokking.